It's Friday, February 26th. This is The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. I am your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host Nick Janusa. Nick, how many people do you think were caught off guard by that intro being slightly different? Um, At least one, because I am confused. I don't even know what to say right now. Yeah, I was like, wait, are we even recording right now? I checked. I literally just checked my um, the thing I record into my program to see if we were even going. So yeah, that's how thrown off I am right now. I was thrown off too. I was fumbling my words a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah. Feeling loose, feeling silly. Today is the first podcast of my life that I am uh, drinking a beverage that is is very well known to people who grew up near us. Uh, Stu Leonard's chocolate milk. My mom took me there for my birthday to go grocery shopping because like I'm 29. Like I didn't need anything for my birthday. So she brought me to Stu Leonard's. I got some chocolate milk among some other groceries and uh, let's do a quick live sip. It hits so good. I know it. Delicious. Delicious. And like so thick and uh, <laughs> it's going to give me tummy troubles because it's like way more milk and dairy and, and chocolate than I need. But whatever. <laughs> whatever, man. It's so good. It literally is like every Sunday going into Stu Leonard's, you just knew you were coming out of there with a freaking huge gallon of chocolate milk. Yeah. And you were going to crush it all pretty much. Like, in like two days. Yeah. Within the first two days that you had it in the house. So. Yeah, I miss that. I miss that stuff. When we were there, my mom pointed at the strawberry milk and she was like, Nick Janusa used to like the strawberry milk. Do you Dude. remember that? And I was like, I don't remember that, mom, but I've been waiting for the show to bring it up with you. Are you still a strawberry milk guy? A hundred percent. That's unbelievable. She still remembers that. <laughs> my mom used to buy the straight. Remember how they used to sell? I don't even know if they sell it anymore. The straight up like strawberry syrup. Oh, I've seen like, Hershey's make that. Yeah. So like, yeah. you know how they have like the chocolate syrup? It's yeah, the yeah, same yeah. thing, but it's strawberry. And I think it's probably 52 grams of sugar per serving. And I used to just put that in some like whatever whole milk and just stir it up. Dude, good night. Like that was my favorite drink <laughs> literally ever was strawberry milk. I That's incredible. Shout out to Marianne. Loves that. Yeah. Yeah. It was a great, it was a great Sunday for me. And uh, that is hilarious that you remember that story. Um, <laughs> while we're on the topic of parents today, Nick and I are recording. It's Tuesday, which is my dad's birthday. So happy birthday to Pete Norton absolute legend and uh, one of my favorite people in my life. Absolute legend. Doesn't even do it justice. Happy birthday, Pete. Love you. Love you too, dad. All right, let's get into the show. for our quick hits for the week. And the first one is by Katrin Einhorn of the New York Times, who writes, the planet needs solar power. Can we build it without harming nature? So this is a really interesting article to me. And I think it brings up an important topic that we do get into on the show, but like maybe as more of an afterthought, maybe it's in passing. This article is about that elephant in the room, which is solar energy, other renewable energies. They're good. We need them. They are far better than fossil fuels. It's way better to not be constantly emitting multiple different greenhouse gases every time we power on anything. Mm -hmm. But how do we create that better, healthier world without causing any additional damage that wasn't accounted for originally? So in this case, like I said, we need to decarbonize. We need to end the use of fossil fuels. And a great way to do that is solar. But solar takes up a lot of space. 
So the question here is, how do we produce and how do we construct solar panels and build solar arrays in an environmentally conscious way that's more than just, well, it's environmentally conscious because it's not oil and gas? This article discusses habitat loss as one of the main problems that animals face amongst the biodiversity crisis that we're experiencing. So rolling out solar arrays over these grassy fields where animals would live, that could contribute to the problem if not done correctly. So some ways to mitigate that harm are wildlife corridors, which we've talked about. I know massive wildlife corridor we talked about was with Carlton Ward Jr. of National Geographic and his Path of the Panther project. Mm. It's basically this, this avenue for animals to be protected and travel from one protected land to another protected land. So wildlife corridors allowing them to pass through these fields um, where the solar panels are going to be. And then another way to do it would be putting native plants, you know, making this not just a field for solar. Yep. You can do a lot around those solar panels. And that final thing that, that the article brings up, there's obviously more, but the third thing is strategic fencing, which we'll get into this more, but there there's fencing requirements for solar fields, right? You need to have them blocked off and it's primarily that way people can't go and tamper it or, you know, get electrocuted. It's, it's for people's safety, but also for the safety of the solar field. How do you construct fencing in a way that still maintains that, but allows for animals to pass through and not have their entire habitat completely disrupted? In other cases, solar developers can ensure that their project has a net benefit on more than just our energy portfolio by choosing sites that have no conservation value currently. If a field has been cleared, previously ruined, or already developed, then any new vegetative plantings along with the solar array would be a bonus. This runs into the issue of permitting and financing, which can be even more difficult on former industrial sites, which could have leftover toxic waste. Yeah, and it's it's really just about, like I said at the beginning, like making sure we we go through this whole process to to not just do it better because the energy is better, right? Like in a one-to-one, solar is better for the environment than coal. Solar is better for the environment than natural gas. Mm-hmm. Same with wind energy. But how do we do this in a way that is better than just the default? So one of the main challenges for solar, as called out by Katrin Einhorn, is that it requires more land per unit of energy than something like wind turbines. So the article shows how wildlife fencing can be used to keep people out, like I had mentioned, you know, making sure you're you're following these electrical codes for whatever municipality, whether it's a city, a town, whatever, uh, making sure you're following those codes while still allowing animals to fit through the holes between the fence links. So instead of a standard chain link fence like you'd think of, there's wider gaps slightly so that people aren't going to crawl through it, but, you know, enough where a deer or a fox can fit right through. To me, and I know I've been hammering this point home because it's an important one, the story breaks down to solar being so much better than fossil fuels, but like, how do we make sure that the solar we're installing doesn't present a new set of challenges for another ongoing struggle that we're facing today, which is the biodiversity crisis? And the thing that's important here is we are going to experience biodiversity loss, whether we we do something about it or not. And it's a matter of how do we make sure we lose as little biodiversity as possible? We're also experiencing this crisis where the planet is warming at a very unsustainable rate in a way where like, if we don't act soon, we are going to have massive, massive problems. And I'm very much downplaying both those issues just to kind of simplify it for discussion. But like, if you listen to the show, you know how we feel about both of those crises. What this this article aims to talk about is like, how do we solve 
one while factoring in two as opposed to how do we solve one and then problem number two, the biodiversity crisis, becomes even worse later down the road because of our efforts to solve problem number one. Yeah, You know, they have to be hand in hand. They have to be done together or else you can't solve both. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the main thing here is like you're saying, yes, solar is so much better than fossil fuels and, and all that stuff. So like we're already, you know, starting off on the right foot, but we can't destroy what we're trying so hard to protect at the same time. Yeah. And I think the most important uh, part of that is actually something that I just said was the choosing sites that have no conservation value. That's that's the key of it all. You know, if you're picking a place or destroying a place to put put this up, you know, put up solar farms, then that's just kind of a you know the opportunity cost there is not really it's not worth it in the long run. You're destroying an ecosystem. You're destroying a place like you said the Carlton Ward Jr. stuff. That's that's a perfect example. The wildlife corridors aren't there. There's n- there's no way for you to have to keep biodiversity intact while also you know making a new site for for new energy that we didn't have before. So it's, it's that choosing sites that have no conservation value. Yeah. That's, that's the easier one from an ecological standpoint, but that's the harder one from the permitting standpoint, because, you know, when you go into these former industrial sites, we'll say it's, it's an old oil or gas factory where there could be toxic waste. Like we mentioned, there's a lot of remediation that needs to get done. A lot of cleanup that needs to get done before you can go in and say, we're going to put in this new thing. So it's tough. And then, you know, the other side of this is, let's say we do want to go in and build a solar farm in a grass field. Mm -hmm. Well, that does have conservation value. Yeah. So how do we make sure we do that well? And it's something that, you know, I had mentioned earlier, the article mentions this, I think dual use. So, so putting in native plantings, you know, making it so that crops that survive well in shade can be planted under the solar panels. You know, that will help the panels stay cooler because the the plants will absorb some of the the heat um, and solar panels will run better when they're slightly cooler. So, you know, that helps. But then also having those native plantings means butterflies, birds, insects, other small mammals are going to go there. So, you know, we're very pro-solar. I used to work in solar. Like this is something that we want more of. It's really just about how do we do this in the way that is like the most conscientious of the greater needs of the environment and, and not just relying on it's good because it's yeah. good. You know, it is good. It is way better than fossil fuels, but that doesn't mean we should just rest on that and say, well, this is good because it's going to have less emissions. So, mm-hmm. you know, the trees will be healthier. That doesn't mean we should cut down trees all the time to do it. So it's it's like such an important topic. And I know this is a lot longer than we usually spend on one story for the quick hits, but there's so much, so much nuance here that, I mean, Nick and I got into quite a bit of it and there's still so much more we could talk about on this topic alone. So check out this article if you're interested. I I thought it was really well written. And, you know, if you have thoughts, DM us on, on Instagram, on Twitter, I guess, send us a TikTok of something funny. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) All right. Our next story is from Clean Technica's Steve Hanley, and it's titled, As aquifers are depleted, areas along the east coast of the U.S. are sinking. 
Virginia Tech and the U.S. Geological Survey released a study that used satellite data to analyze the U.S. East Coast, and it found that coastal cities are sinking, and the cause is a combination of development, people migrating to cities causing more development, and groundwater depletion. The East Coast gets regular rainfall, but deeper aquifers below clay or bedrock can take hundreds or thousands of years to recharge once water is pumped out, according to the study. Surface aquifers can be prone to pollution and saltwater intrusion. When the water is pumped out, it causes the gaps to be filled by sediment. So cities that were built on drained marshland or fill are at increased risk of sinking. The mid-Atlantic and southeastern U.S. have sunk by about one millimeter per year since the last ice age, which makes the entire coast more prone to flooding. This is especially problematic as the sea levels rise due to climate change. Yeah, and one millimeter per year does not sound like a lot, but you got to think of the absolute compounding effect of thousands of thousands of, of years happening since that last ice age. So the article does end by highlighting an issue that we are currently experiencing in the American West. The normal way people address issues like overpumping from aquifers is to wait for them to run dry and then look for someone to point the finger at and say, this is this person's fault, this is this group's fault, this is this company's fault, they're responsible for cleaning it up. They're responsible for refilling this aquifer somehow. The article ends by saying, it would be far better to address the issue before it gets critical, before we run out of water in these aquifers, and you know, before the U.S. East Coast starts to sink even more. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's honestly scary, <laughs> you know, and, and the thing is, too, is, you know, we ha- we already have sea level rise, right? And, okay, yeah. that's one thing. So the sea level is coming up, and then you also have us sinking. So what does that do? <laughs> just, yeah. just straight up, physiologically, what does that do to us? We are going to meet faster than, you know, if we were just, if we weren't getting sunk, essentially. So, yeah, uh, yeah it's a scary thought that we've we've sunk by one millimeter per year. It really doesn't sound like a lot, but it has to add up. It, it absolutely does, you know, and like I'm, I'm not seeing any slowdown in the pace of development in cities along the East Coast. Right. Like New York is always building more. Miami is always building more. Philly, Boston, D.C., all these areas that are mm-hmm. very close to water and constantly have more buildings going up and, and more buildings being taken down in favor of bigger buildings. Well, guess what? Bigger buildings weigh more. Yeah. And the more we keep developing, the more it's going to keep sinking. And this isn't to be alarmist. This isn't to be like, oh, we shouldn't do this. People need places to live. You know, it's, it's good that more housing is being built in cities. I'm a fan of building vertically because then we can keep more space green, you know, without having suburban sprawl happen and having more and more houses being built on area that could be conservation land. Right. Um, I'm a fan of building vertically and just, you know, this building, instead of making it six stories, make it 10. And that's however many more units of housing. That's, that's good to me. But again, like it's an issue that needs to be solved for. And it's really alarming. (laughs) Like I know I said before, I'm not trying to be alarmist, but it is alarming that the sea level is rising. Like you, you pointed out while we are sinking. So yeah. Um, as always with tough scientific questions like this, we will leave it to people far smarter than the two of us to solve. Yes. And we will just report on it when it happens. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. That's the way we do things here. All right. Let's get into this week's environmental policy roundup. The Biden administration's EPA is tightening restrictions on fine particulate matter, which includes emissions like soot from power plants, factories, and other buildings in the industry sector. 
Because of how small the particulates are, they can get into our lungs and bloodstreams and, for lack of a better term, wreak havoc on our respiratory and cardiac systems. The new rule cuts the annual standards to 9 micrograms per cubic meter of air from the current 12. So, again, 3 micrograms per cubic meter of air doesn't sound like a lot, but when you think of it this way, the standard was just reduced to 75% of what it is. And anytime you can have a 25% cut in any dangerous emission, that's a good thing. This is going to prevent an estimated 4,500 premature deaths per year. On the other hand, the EPA plans to ease tailpipe emission requirements through 2030, loosening its proposed requirement from April 2023 that vehicles would be required to emit 56% less by 2032. This slowed pace means that we can expect less than 60% of total vehicles produced by 2030 to be electric. A spokesperson for the EPA said its goal is to let the supply chain and market catch up to the push for electric vehicles. Yeah, I I don't know how I feel about that one. You know, it's um, on the one hand, like I'm thinking of lower and middle class people where it's good to make cars as affordable as possible for those people. On the other hand, I'm thinking of the automobile manufacturers where like they have made so much money for decades and, and, you know, a century in some cases where if their profit market margin gets cut into a little bit, they're still going to be doing really well. Um, the issue with that is if their profit margin gets cut into, it's not going to be the C-suite that's going to feel it. It's going to be, you know, mass layoffs for auto workers. So like corporate greed is the reason that this is happening in a way. Um, like it's good to let the market catch up a little bit to something that the market is already trending towards. Um, but I would have loved to see, you know, in an ideal scenario, the Biden administration say, nope, we are going to continue to increase these standards and it's going to have to be more efficient or fully electric or whatever the standards are, you know, automakers go out and do it yeah, and do it in a way where it's affordable for people and it's going to cut into your profits for a little bit, but Hey, Ford, Chevy, BMW, you're doing pretty well company wide. <laughs> like people drive cars. So, yeah. I, my thing too is like, I, I understand the, you know, letting the supply chain market catch up because we're already having issues in the automotive industry with like supply chain issues. Yeah. So I don't, I'd rather like kind of make this a more gradual transition rather than just rushing it. And then we can't, you know, we can't supply the parts for people who need, you know, new parts for, for these new electric vehicles, or we can't supply, you know, the same safety standards or, you know, anything like that. I'd rather make it a more, you know, yeah, sustainable transition basically rather than rushing into it and then having all these major issues because then, then you have people who can't go to work and that's an issue. So, yeah, I just don't know if eight years is rushing. Right. Like this, this is 2032 we're talking about. Fair enough. And these companies have all the money in the world to figure it out. So I don't know, like maybe I'm being too cynical. Um, And and I think the caveat that I kind of led with is the people who, who can afford to make a little bit less money would not be the ones who would be feeling it. You know, they would do the classic huge bonus for the C-suite and then lay everyone off and be like, we're so sorry. We can't pay salaries this year. Right. Please feel bad. Like, yeah, I'm so sick of mega corporations. <laughs> All right. <laughs> As always, those stories are in your show notes. If you want to read for more detail, we are going to take a quick break. And then we got two more stories for you when we get back. One of them. Very fun. Stick around.
Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co slash TPT for 15% off. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co slash TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, NOAA Coral Reef Watch extends alert scale following extreme coral heat stress in 2023 by climate.gov's Haley Thyme. This highlights just how bad coral bleaching is. Alert level two is no longer enough to describe the devastation that some reefs have experienced. Last year's record-breaking temperatures and increased ocean temperatures meant that entire coral reefs bleached in some cases, resulting in widespread death. This includes the Caribbean and off the coast of Florida. The scale previously went from no stress to alert level two, which meant that severe widespread bleaching and death were expected for tropical coral reefs based on the daily average temperatures. Now, if 80% or more of the reef is experiencing bleaching, it's considered alert level five. So they added three new alert levels just to highlight the difference. And the good news here is that this is going to help researchers identify areas of greater concern, you know, more than just having a scale that ranges from no stress to we should really keep an eye on this to this is bad. You know, now you have Mm -hmm. that same scale, but that this is bad ranges to this is bad. This is really bad to this is absolutely devastating. And, And that's all good information to have for researchers. And for conservationists, frankly, the bad news is that we genuinely needed this scale to document it. There's a major difference between widespread coral bleaching and death and 80% of the reef could be lost entirely. So, you know, like I hate that we're at this point, but I think it's really good that the scale is now adapting to help people who work on saving these reefs have all of the information they need just by looking at like there's, there's a map in this article that shows the difference now where you can see real genuine hotspots of this is bad all over, but this area is the worst. Yeah. Yeah, it is good. And like for those people, like you said, who are working in this field, yeah, it's it's like uh, it's like the air map that they finally created, air.gov or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, okay, the air is going to be horrible today near me, so I should probably, you know, take precautions. Um, for them, though, it's more like, a, oh, okay, the corals are horrible today, so we can, you know, do whatever it is. But I wanted to bring up some things that save or protect coral reefs. Yeah, we, that's a good call. Before we finish off here really quick. Um, so one is to recycle, obviously, and dispose of trash properly. So marine debris can be harmful to, to coral reefs for mm-hmm. obvious, you know, many, many obvious reasons. Um, the other thing is minimize use of fertilizers. And the last one is to use environmentally friendly modes of transportation. So those are three ways you can help the reefs. Yeah, those are all absolutely great. And the other thing I would add is make sure when you're buying sunscreen to buy reef safe sunscreen. There's a lot of uh, 
Yes. I, th- I think the aerosols are generally worse than the creams. Um, but yeah, just make sure that your, your sunscreen is reef safe. Yeah, absolutely. Before we move on very off topic, but you brought something up, uh, with, you know, plastic pollution and minimizing our waste. I saw something on the internet recently that was like, it was trashing people like billionaires for flying private jets. And I was like, hell yeah, the resistance. <laughs> but they were like, but environmentalists are mad at me for using a plastic straw. And like, if you're listening to the show, I know we don't need to tell you this, like you are not the, ta- the target audience for, th- for this rant, <laughs> but like, those are different issues. <laughs> the plastic problem is bad. Yes, it's bad because of the production and how it's a, a petrol compound right. that is made from a fossil fuel and turned into something that doesn't degrade and pollutes the environment and harms ecosystems. Like that is a problem, but plastic in the ocean isn't causing the atmosphere <laughs> to get way hotter every year. It's causing a slew of other problems. Right. Like, oh my God. Like I saw that. And it's just like the, the cognitive disconnect people have sometimes between, oh, I thought that this was a problem. I thought that the plastic straws were killing the environment. Like they are. And so yeah. are private jets. And like, I can handle yeah. one thing. Like I can stop doing single use plastics. I alone can't get, you know, a billionaire to be like, oh, I want to go have lunch in space. Yeah. Thanks. Blue origin. <laughs> Time to go burn thousands of tons of fuel. All right. Yeah. For a 15 minute joyride. Yeah. All right. Let's get into our last quick hit of the week. And it is from the New York Times where Rachel Neuer writes mammals with the munchies curing animals with cannabis. Story here is medical marijuana can have similar effects in mammals as it has in humans. And I know there's someone who's like, uh, yeah, humans are mammals. You're right. And that's where this kind of connects here. So veterinarians are turning to CBD and THC to help animals with chronic pain. And the first example given here in the article is Dr. Quizali Hernandez, who gave low doses of CBD to an elephant in her wildlife park to research how this would help her pain tolerance and the loss of the appetite. So basically what happened is this elephant named Nydia, um, she had a lot of chronic foot pain. And because the pain was so bad, she had stopped eating as much. Um, She wasn't eating all of her food. And by starting with low doses of CBD and then working that dosage up until they found, you know, what is the optimal dosage for Nydia to feel better, she went from eating only a third of her food to eating all of her food and gaining 555 pounds in five weeks. <laughs> like she gained everything back that she had lost in a little over a month because she wasn't in pain anymore. And a week or so after her treatment started, she was noticeably more social, was hanging out with, with other elephants more and didn't struggle with her foot pain. So this was, this was really cool. The use of medical marijuana for humans is legal in the U.S. and many other countries, but the research on how it can impact animals has been lacking. In some countries, CBD is commonly given to dogs to help them deal with seizures and anxiety, and veterinarians in Mexico have been using it on parrots, turtles, and hyenas to treat other conditions. Newer writes that despite the promising findings related to medical marijuana in animals, there is hesitancy to use it more often due to confusion about its legality a stigma about drug use, and a lack of peer-reviewed studies on how effective it is in animals. But there are people still very interested in alternative treatments that work as well or better than the typical ones. The article calls out California as a place where laws allow for a growing number of veterinarians to use veterinary cannabis. The article also talks about a vet from Toluca, Dr. Monica Lozano Garza, who has given CBD to her patients to help them ease their stress during office visits. 
This has helped treatment in anxious pups and anxious kittens as well. So before we go on to discuss this, disclaimer, as always, Nick and I are not doctors. Nick and I are not veterinarians. Nick and I are not wildlife biologists. We are two guys with a podcast who care about animals. Yes, absolutely. And I'll start I'll start it off here with I give my dog CBD, but it's also got like some THC in it. Um, whenever we leave her for extended amounts of time and whenever it like rains or snows out and we can't get her energy out because she's like a psycho. She's 75 pounds. So if we can't get her energy out, it's it's like she's just like a wreck. So mm-hmm. just just doing it every time that we can't get her outside um, for the day, which is not often, probably like maybe once a week, probably more like once every two weeks, works like a charm. She's just so much more relaxed. She's more chill. She wants to sleep. It's it's just amazing, honestly. Yeah, and for people who aren't as familiar with, with the chemical compounds in cannabis, CBD is more of like the body relaxing feeling. THC is the one that's the, the head high. So- Yes. You know, this, what, what Nick's doing with his dog, that makes sense. You know, Bachi is just relaxing a little bit. Um, it's not like she's going to start seeing stuff, but no, no. Yeah. I, I do. I, I think that this is a really cool development and I led with this humans are mammals. It makes sense that this works in other mammals, but I do think it's interesting that they brought up like how this is, I guess, kind of like lagging behind in research because marijuana isn't legal in everywhere in the U S and it's not legal in every other country. And, you know, like Mm -hmm. maybe using it in a medical setting is a way to like, if, if we do clinical trials here in the U S on how it works on different animals at veterinary clinics, at zoos, at wildlife uh, reserves, stuff like that, you know, maybe there's a way to legalize it in other countries by using this data and say, well, this is veterinary cannabis. This isn't like recreational and and maybe that's a step for them. Right. But yeah, I mean like this is another topic where there's nuance and it's so interesting. And, you know, I, I hope that more places are able to, to whether it's research this or just make it legal. I, I think that this has a lot of good properties and it's not, it's not like my my cats are going to start like smoking joints. <laughs> like they're not going to have to deal with like the negative effects of of marijuana, which is the damage it does to your lungs, and you know how it's not great for your heart when you smoke anything. So right, this is just like a supplement without the part that gets them high, and more of just the like we're going to chill out a little bit. Now that being said, I have the chillest kittens in the world, so I don't need to do that. But like maybe next time they go to the vet, something we look into. Yeah. I mean, listen, anything that can make you go from not eating to gaining 555 pounds <laughs> is probably a good thing. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of it's kind of hilarious, like how big elephant like I know elephants are big. Like you can look at an elephant and be like, this is a big animal. But when you see the numbers, you're like, elephants are so big. <laughs> yeah, they're massive. They're absolute units. So that's pretty cool. I have nothing else to add other than I love elephants. They're my favorite animals. And I'm glad, like you just said, that Nydia is eating and, and gain that weight back. Hell yeah. That's going to be it for this week's episode of TPT. We'll be back next Friday for our first episode of March. February is a short month, but man, still flew by. Until then, go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can and follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Nick Chanus produces our show and makes all the music you hear throughout. Nick, where can people bump your tunes? You can bump my tunes at soundcloud.com slash budlincape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out, y'all. 
Our logo is made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone. And we'll catch you right here next Friday. Peace.